0: Your host, Sean, none other than my very own dad, sits down with inspirational individuals who share key learnings from their own experiences on becoming great.
1: Sean sits down and unpacks their formula for success and in turn highlights how we can all learn from others' experiences,
0: unlocking our own scope to grow and become our best version. I'm confident that you will all enjoy it. Thanks for taking the time to listen.
1: Guys, we're super lucky today to have James Lachlan joining us all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand. Really impressive individual hailing from Northern Ireland. Really interesting guy. He's now a high performance leadership coach. He's worked with hundreds of high performing individuals and companies from all over the world, from pro athletes, CEOs, and huge companies. And he's really passionate about that notion of high performance leadership. He's a former world champion musician. He's got a fantastic podcast that he hosts as well. So really interesting guy, passionate guy, and I'm confident you'll get some great takeaways. Thanks for listening. in, James, thanks very much for joining us here today, mate. I really appreciate it. We had a wonderful time in Christchurch recently in a financial year conference, and Christchurch at the Convention Centre was magic. So... I've picked up that your dialect isn't necessarily straight from Christchurch, so maybe you could just give the listeners a quick overview around how you come to be in beautiful Christchurch.
0: Sean, so great to be here, and it was a pleasure to connect with you and the stellar team at Tipai in Christchurch. It was fantastic. What a team you've got there. And yeah, in terms of my accent, yeah, so I'm from Northern Ireland, and I've been living down in the Antipodes for the last 16, 17 years. Grew up in a working-class town just north of Belfast. From a very young age, had a desire to travel. Northern Ireland is a very beautiful country. There are lots of great opportunities there, but also there are challenges uh, growing up there. So obviously, uh, there's a, a sectarian and a religious divide, and that, that still is, to this day, uh, still part of the culture in Northern Ireland in different forms. Uh, so growing up, I've seen some stuff that perhaps wasn't the most empowering, and uh, certainly wasn't enjoyable at times to witness. And so I had this like desire to leave and travel and and explore like a lot of, I guess, my Irish ancestors have done. And so at school, I ended up in the headmaster's office a little too often. I was very <laughs> effervescent is probably the word I <laughs> will, will choose to use. Uh, but certainly uh, I spent a lot of time chatting to him. And at one point he said, look, I was about nine years old, eight years old. You've got an option, detention or drumsticks. And I said, hey. You know, unless you're pranking me right now, like the drumsticks sound great. So I took the drumsticks and <laughs> a little bit I know he was a bagpiper and he had a bagpipe band. And of course, as we know, bagpipers wear kilts. And at nine years old, when you're trying to fit in at school, uh, you don't really want to be wearing a <laughs> So He omitted the details. I got into this drumming. I was practicing on this little drum pad, starting to get some praise, starting to get some skills. And he said, hey, why don't you enter the Northern Ireland Championships? There's a solo competition. Oh, cool. I'm competitive. I love that. So I went there just to engage and have fun, ended up winning. I was like, oh, I'm good at something. And I was getting all this praise from my headmaster (laughs) and my parents. I was like, it felt good. And then there was the Ireland Championships, and I did quite well there. And then the World Championships came up when I was 13. And I went across there, no expectations, but I practiced diligently, very competitive, you know, doing hours a day. And I ended up winning. So it was my first time there, won the, the Juvenile World Solo Drumming Championships. Did it again the year after. And from that point onward, Sean, the phone started ringing. It was Vancouver, Canada, was the first opportunity to go and play with the Simon Fraser University Pipe Band. So I went there and uh, seen life from a different point of view and seen that as a ticket out of Northern Ireland, this drumming passion I had. And by this point, the kilt wasn't so bad. I was getting some positive comments for the ladies when I was a youngster. So <laughs> I took that as a positive. <laughs> and then a Christchurch School called me and they said, look, We've seen what you've done. We'd like you to take what you've done and bring it to Christchurch and help us become the first world champions from New Zealand as a drumline, as a pipe band. I was like, okay, that sounds great. I said, look, there's a couple of things. One, I need a place to sleep. Two, if you could cover my flights, that'd be awesome. Uh, you could pay me. I don't really care what you pay me, but it'd be great to you know, have some money to do some things. And the most important part, I want permanent residency. And I know that takes time, but I wanna work towards that. If you can give me a ticket that I can live overseas, I can do my thing, I will do everything I can to help you win the world championships. And so I came down here and worked really hard with the team. A lot of it was technical and tactical skills for the first three or four years, just rolling up the sleeves. And then we started hitting a brick wall and the world championship wasn't looking possible. So then I started to shift and go, okay, well, what helped me win mine? Well, a lot of it was psychological, a lot of it was vision setting, a lot of it was working through beliefs. So I just worked with this group and they were very much an underdog team, worked on the psychological side of it, really inspired them through story and gotten to buy in to the fact that they could be world champions. And in 2013, they were crowned world champions. And that was just a game-changing moment for them, for the New Zealand drumming and pipe band scene. It was a real game-changer. And for me, that was the platform then to start looking at psychology and coaching. Executive coaching is where I started. And now high-performance leadership and working with teams is what I geek out on. I love it.
1: So, yeah, I mean, just going back through that sort of journey, amazing sort of journey, twists and turns along the way, obviously some challenges in the beginning back in Ireland and obviously you discovered this thing you were great at and obviously that brought a lot of opportunity to yourself, uh, culminating a newcomer to Christchurch. I read it on your website, you then had this moment, shall we say, and I'd love to sort of talk through what that catalyst was from moving from this nine to five, I think as you put it, boredom into living a purposeful life. And obviously, the work that you're doing now, coaching individuals and businesses on performance leadership, and a bunch of other stuff is really, really interesting. So, talk us through that moment where you thought, right, no more of what I'm doing, I'm going on a new journey.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, Sean. So, when I look at my dad, you know, my dad's a welder, and he left school at 16 to become a welder, and is uh, 61, 62, and is still a welder. My grandfather had the same job his whole life. My mom has worked for the government her whole life, as has my brother and my sister. And I've always had itchy feet. Like I want to grow. Growth is something I just, I'm so passionate about learning, asking questions. I'm that pain in the ass that's always asking the questions, right? And (laughs) I got to a point in my career where I was like, okay, I've done that world championship thing and I've built a retail business and I've taken that to the point where in Australasia, it's probably not going to grow anymore. (sighs) What's next? And I was just waking up on a Monday going, this is good. And everyone's telling me how lucky I am because I'm, you know, I've got this passion for drumming and I'm, it's, it's my career. But something was missing. It was like, you know, this just doesn't feel right. And I started exploring things, but it was probably a couple of life ambushes that really set me in the direction of where I needed to go. And those life ambushes came in the form of the Christchurch earthquakes, uh, which, you know, we had a couple of biggies, and then we had thousands and thousands of little aftershocks. And for me, each aftershock, you didn't know if it was gonna be another big one. So there was a certain degree of stress, anxiety, and I actually left New Zealand with my then partner. We went back to Canada where she's from and spent a bit of time like weighing up New Zealand or Canada and we ended up coming back, but there was a degree of PTSD that I was working through. And certainly self-medication was what I opted for, you know, through alcohol. And I normalized it like it's just a couple of beers a day or it's half a bottle of wine in the evening. And just became a habit and started to get into this rut really unhealthy rut and then the next life ambush came along a few years later in the form of miscarriage and you know i see myself as being an irish male and you're a provider and you're strong and you know i understand how the mind works and i was wrecked i was like what is life about this is wrong this doesn't make sense it was devastating for lisa and for i and again it was one of those moments where it's like what on earth am I doing? Like, Am I truly living out my dharma, like my potential, my passion? The answer was no, but I had no idea what to do. And I think many of us get to that point in our lives where we know it doesn't feel right, but we don't know where to go, or if we know where to go, we don't know what the first step might look like. So I actually, uh, you and I have chatted about this when we were here in Christchurch. I went to Tony Robbins' event in Sydney, along with 7,500 other people, and had incredible four days, high energy, just connecting with great people, but also challenging my thinking, challenging my beliefs. That weekend, I made a decision. I was like, you know what? I want to take my skill set through performance, high performance, psychology, all these world championship titles that I'd been going and fighting for. I wanted to take all those lessons and go, how can I help people who are passionate about making a difference, whether that's through work that they do in the corporate world, whether that's through philanthropy, whether that's through sport. And so I started developing the skills and having conversations with people that could help me transfer those skills and really empower others.
1: Fantastic. How did you go about from one of the things I sort of picked up through Tony Robbins is he's big on take massive immediate action. So- you formed this view that maybe your life you're living was good but not great and maybe not the life that you were destined to live. Uh, Talk us through that sort of moment where you just took that plunge, maybe resigning from your current job, uh, setting up this new business, this new framework, you know, just talk us through that, I guess, transition.
0: Yeah, the transition, it was scary and I think anybody that makes a career leap, uh, that is always scary. Uh, So, I'd been given some advice to like burn the boats and leave everything <laughs> behind and just jump all in. But I'm a dad. Like I was a young dad at a, a one-year-old. I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. So it's not smart. Like I wouldn't advise a client to just burn everything and, and jump into the next thing. So at the school I was teaching at, it was a private school. And many of the parents of the kids that I was teaching were running pretty successful businesses here in New Zealand. And so we started having conversations around their business. And that naturally led to, hey, why are you asking that? And led to me going hey well I can actually support you with that so on the side I was building this business while I was at the private school I was building a a side hustle if you want to call it but what I was doing is looking at my formula for drumming I believe in the 10,000 hour rule I believe in getting the repetitions Mm in so for me it was like okay I'm going Mm -hmm. to build repetitions so when I do make the leap and go from this comfort this nine to five comfort when I make the leap I've got thousands and thousands of hours of repetitions. I've learned and iterated. And so I built that over about two and a bit years to a point right before COVID. Obviously, no idea COVID was coming. Two months before COVID, I fully said, okay, the school stuff is done. Uh, it's been a great four, 13, 14 years. Uh, you know, We've been fortunate to win a world championship and I think 14 national championships. It's been great. And I'm going to miss it, but I'm also going to miss this potential part of my life and trying to reach for my own potential if I don't make the jump. So I made the jump and uh, went out on my own and obviously had built some clients and uh, it's been very organic. It's I guess that's how you and I met. It was, it was a word of mouth. I hosted a high-performance leadership event in Christchurch. Someone came along and got back to you and Robbie and uh, we connected that way. So I've really relied on results and people coming along and experiencing it and then having a conversation with someone. So yeah, for me, it's just been slowly,
1: organically growing that. Fantastic. And I guess another question, you know, I'm always inquisitive, a bit like you, you talk about mindset and psychology being the catalyst that enabled the school that you're working with to become world champions, right? And they weren't necessarily perhaps, you know, to paraphrase the most talented bunch over the underdogs, but you doubled down on the mindset and the psychology. How have you gone about learning around how the mind works and techs and psychology to be a great enabler so uh, what, what have you done sort of equip yourself in that regard yeah that's actually been really like
0: ongoing i would say since i was about 12 i had a realization that you know one day i'd go and perform as a musician and you've got like about seven and a half thousand strokes so like tiny little drumming notes and some accents all these different articulations you do this in a five minute period of time and it's memorized there's no sheet music some days i was just on it and other days I fumbled, I had a mistake, I forgot where I was. What was different, was it my breakfast? Was it that the judge was staring at me or what was it? And I realized it was actually all upstairs. It was all in the head. So I, at 12, went to the local library because that's what we did back then. There was no such thing as an audible. (laughs) (laughs) And I got the inner game of music. And the, the same guy wrote the inner game of golf and he wrote the inner game of tennis. And it's incredible insights as to how the brain works, psychology works and how it affects performance. That then led on to getting more books on performing under pressure. I then got Tony Robbins full cassette tape as you did back in the day and all around uh, performing (laughs) under pressure. And it became a lifelong habit of asking questions. You know, I wrote a book when I was still involved in the drumming world where I interviewed 40 world champions all pipers and drummers, and all around, what do you think? How do you think? How do you prep? Tell me about your bad days. Tell me about your struggles. So I could learn, but also I could share that with others who experience psychological challenges, which we all do through fear, through disappointment, through worry. So it's been ongoing, and then I've also then went on to study and go through the International Coaching Federation, which is really more so learning how you draw great insights out of the person you're working with or the team that you're working with. Now, I think when you understand psychology and you look at coaching, it's not necessarily about consulting. There is a portion of that where it's powerful, but a lot of it's about letting the client or the team know the answer's already there. You're just in your own way. Mm. How can we work together to get you out Mm. of your own way? And so, yeah, the psychology side of it's just ongoing. And I obviously run my podcast, Lead on Purpose, where I interview prime ministers, presidents, Fortune 100 CEOs, and just ask them. What do you think? How do you do it? Why do you learn? But like yourself, just connect with, with other people and ask uh, good questions.
1: Now, nah, fantastic. Love the quest for knowledge. I've got a 12-year-old. I admire you for showing that desire and commitment to understand how the mind works to better yourself. But obviously, now you're helping many people through the work you're doing with your coaching and consulting and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's awesome. And, and frankly, I think that should be part of our school curriculum yeah. and understanding how the mind works and psychology and all that sort of this stuff. But, that's a conversation for another day. But as we touched on at the start of the show, we had a wonderful day in Christchurch with yourself. Very engaging. I thought it was brilliant the way you sort of managed the session. But obviously, the, the focus of the session was high-performance leadership. So I'd be keen to get your definition or your understanding around what are the fundamentals of high-performance leadership?
0: Absolutely. So when we think of high performance, and for the listener that's listening right now, I'd love them just to take a moment to go, what is high performance? And we've all got our own definitions, but often people come to mind and they're athletes, they're maybe celebrities that have done 100 films and had 20 Oscars. But often when you look back 20 years, even 10 years ago, where health ended, high performance began. Now, that's okay if you're willing to sacrifice your well-being, your relationships. But to me, high performance in a sustainable sense is performing above those standard norms in your industry, whatever that industry might be. It could be as a parent, it could be as a welder, it could be as a CEO, doesn't matter what it is. But performing above the standard norms over the long term. So, winning a world championship once does not make you a high performer. Winning it two, three, four, multiple times. Okay, you're a high performing world champion, or it could be national champion, or it could be yeah. CEO of the year, whatever it might be. Once, that's cool. Like you've proved there's a method, but high performance is long term stuff. It's staying in the game. So performing above those standard norms over the long term, here's the most important part whilst maintaining positive well being and relationships. You know, we look at Robin Williams, hell, we don't ever want to have to put our families through that. He was an incredible high performer in the sense that he was just top of the pops, but his well-being suffered and often our work and our stresses and our ambitions can impact our psychology. So I firmly believe high performance leadership starts within, starts with leading yourself before you lead others. And everything that I teach, whether it's in a group, whether it's in front of a big audience, whether it's one-to-one comes back to really developing personal leadership before you start to even try to develop and lead others.
1: Yeah, I love that you talk about getting that foundation of yourself right first. And for many years, I sort of thought, if not consciously, unconsciously, that sometimes things were mutually exclusive. If I was going to excel in business, that would be to the detriment or trade off for my health or relationships, all that sort of stuff. So I love that you say that it's really getting the harmony between all of it. Obviously, it's a pretty fluid sort of environment at the best of times, but getting that uh, wellness and success personally and professionally in order i think that's the most sustainable and healthy way to sort of chase high performance so i love what you sort of talk about there through the course of the session we had in Christchurch it's become very apparent to me that you're a very passionate father and perhaps above all your number one focus in life and obviously you've got a bunch of other things that you do and do some great work in that regard you talked about interviewing a bunch of people back in the day to uh, i think improve your craft of music but also understand that you've interviewed a bunch of legendary dads and and maybe legendary by the status of what you just talked about before in terms of maintaining success and wellness across the different facets of life. So what can you share around what you've learned from some of those legendary dads about what it takes to be a great dad?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So to me, I look at myself as a rookie dad. I've got a six-year-old boy and he's awesome, but I'm learning. Like every day I'm learning and iterating and trying to improve. And When he was born, I made a big decision, like within moments of holding him, like this emotion came over me and you've got kids, you look at this child and you're like, everything changes. It's a paradigm shift. And so I decided at that minute, I'm going to retire from competitive international drumming. Like this year I'm done. And most people in drumming drum into their sixties, right? I was like, no, I know what it's going to cost me. And it means I'm going to be out five nights a week. I'm going to be traveling 30 weekends a year. And all of our holiday time and all of our budget is going to be going to Scotland and North America. I thought, no, my child's not going to know a life like that. I thought, I've done my thing. I've had my fill. Now let's change tack and let's focus on him. So I appreciated that he was growing up in New Zealand because in Northern Ireland, we had challenges right, in terms of violence. But I quickly appreciated he was growing up in a country that has the highest teen suicide rate in the OECD. I worked at a school where we had, I think, about 10 kids kill themselves in 14 years that I was there. This is an affluent school. We're not talking, you know, suicide doesn't just, it's not for a certain segment of society. It goes right through. And so whilst at the school, I started asking questions like, why? And how do we prevent this? Let's chat about this. And certain leaders at the school essentially told me to be quiet and go away. And so being a little bit stubborn, a little bit Irish, I said, okay, well, if you can't answer it, I'm going to go and talk to our prime minister. And so I went straight to the prime minister, got him just like you and I sitting on a call. Now we got on a zoom call and, uh, started asking him questions. Why do we have the teen suicide rate that it is what's driving it? How do we make a difference? What have you done to make a difference? And that was really selfish of me because essentially by the time my boy becomes a teenager, I want to have some skills behind me and I want him to have awareness so that we can at least give him a chance to not be a statistic here in New Zealand. And so I started chatting with lots of different dads, Uh, Warren Farrell. He consults to the White House on boys and men's health. It was just incredible. And he says, James, what your prime minister said, some of it's accurate. Some of it's just way off. Here's what I think. And here's the research I've done on it, like 30 years of research and Here's the one takeaway from that conversation. He said, James, what's the number one cause of suicide? And I says, Well, according to the people I've chatted to, you've got a couple of competing factors uh, drugs, sexual abuse in the family, and social media bullying. He went, They're all secondary factors. He's like, What's the number one primary factor? I was like, I don't know. He says, An absent father. And my hair stood in the back of my neck. I was like, Whoa. He says, why are boys six times more likely to commit suicide than girls from puberty onwards? I "I don't know. He says, there's no present male figure that they can learn from. And so at that point, I started talking to the Stephen Fleming, the um, cricketer, uh, Richie McCaw, started connecting with these dads. Some of them are well into it. Uh, Some of them are rookies like me. So Richie was a rookie. And we got chatting about what it means to be a dad and what we're trying to impart with our kids. So. I just went down this rabbit hole of connecting with dads that were thinking similar to me or challenging my thinking just to try and learn how to be that bit better.
1: Yeah, wow. Yeah, it sort of stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? And I, and I guess uh, absent doesn't need to be absent as in terms of physically absent. It can be mentally absent, right? And yeah. maybe you've been guilty of that. I've certainly been guilty of that where you're in the same room, but your mind's a thousand miles away a thousand miles away with whatever else that's going on so yeah when you boil it down to that simple point it makes it pretty simple in terms of how we can best help our uh, young men and obviously that's not necessarily differentiated just to men only obviously we can take the same approach to our daughters and whatnot as well but uh that's really really interesting and i guess just on the back of that and i can sort of tell you passion on the topic if you were charged with tackling this issue and it seems to be an issue that's getting worse not better which is paradoxical in the sense that we seem to be living in a good time, right? In New Zealand and Australia, it's safe. We've got a great standard of living. The lifestyle's great. The earning potential's good. We're pretty safe. But still, we've got this concerning climb or sorry, increase of suicide rates and mental health. So, if you were charged with trying to fix this issue, how would you tackle it?
0: You'd start from three or four years of age, and this is something Finn's only six, so like we're in the thick of it. Is labeling emotions. And so I've got this, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll search it out and send you it. But it's a book around kids labeling their emotions like, they, I'm sad, and here's why I feel sad. I'm angry. Here's why I feel angry. Actually understanding your emotions and knowing that they're okay. So I'd start right at that age in terms of like having a conversation at a familial level. Then once they get into school, it's like, okay, yeah, anti-bullying is a thing, but actually let's talk about why is the bully bullying? Okay, so let's have a conversation around what trauma they have. What is it that they're not getting at home? Or what is it that they're witness to? Or maybe there's some abuse at home. Having conversations, taking the time and putting the resources around looking at the bullies, looking at the kids who are being bullied and asking questions and getting curious and wrapping support around them. Then when we get to that teenage stage, it's about educating them around what leadership looks like, self-leadership caring for your hygiene, caring for your body, knowing what it is to say yes and say no, understanding consent, all these things, I think we need to spend more time on those and a little less time on Pythagoras theorem, on William Shakespeare. There's a place for that. I get it. It's interesting and it's intriguing and it's history, but what's more important, are kids knowing Pythagoras theorem or are kids knowing that there's a different alternative than hanging themselves? It's a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it still dumbfounds me to this day. I mean, uh, respectfully to the school curriculum, I can't remember any of those uh, Shakespeare insights or, or, or learnings from way back in the day. It's a long time ago now. But I do recognise the value I would have got as a young man, understanding how my mind worked and then some of the factors that you talked about. Because the universal things that would carry me to a better place as an adult and all the rest of it, rather than trying to stumble and fumble on your own. And you can't help but feel like you sort of touched on in your own experience, the level of self-medication that goes on, whether it's drugs or alcohol, trying to solve for whatever's going on in the mind that they don't understand, let alone the traumas that people go through, and that results in crime, Uh, murders, incarceration, so much damage. But if we sort of equip people with a way to sort of understand how their mind works and tools and tactics to sort of navigate stress, anxiety, all those things that are normal and common, I can't help but feel that we'd be a better place. So I think we definitely share that that view of the world and, and getting in as early as we can. And I just think it's uh, just so, so important. So I think that's a conversation for another day for, for the two of us. So I'd love to pick that up further. I would love to ask you a question, if it's okay, on your website again, doing preparation with the website, I read this quote where you went through this process of consciously uncoupling with Finn's mum. Can you sort of talk to us about that? Because I think so often through life, we just keep stumbling and fumbling and all the rest of it. We're not actually conscious of where we're going. What's the upside? What's the downside? So can you share a little bit more around what that process looked like?
0: Yeah, of course. You're one of the few people uh, who I think has the courage to ask that. A lot of people go, oh, let's not talk about divorce and separation and all that stuff. It's uh, you know, well, Let's keep it positive. But actually, that is so positive and I look back at that. So Lisa and I met uh, in Canada. I was very young, mm-hmm. early 20s, maybe twenty twenty one. Lisa was four or five years older. We really hit it off and we traveled the world and we grew a business, uh, we emigrated. We spent a bit of time in Sydney, about a year in Sydney. We came across here to New Zealand and we yeah, built the business. We both worked at the school together. We, we had a great life and we got married in, in Noosa, there uh, up in, uh, in Queensland you know, there was this deep connection and at no point there for, the, for a long time did I ever see that ever changing. And neither did she. And when you step into marriage, you n- never foresee it ending. But no. like, let's be honest, look at the statistics. It's like 50-50, right? You wouldn't buy yeah. that horse. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, the statistics are pretty damning. And so things started to change and I firmly believe, you know, that you can grow together or you can grow apart. And growing apart, can be ugly or it can actually be quite beautiful. And that comes down to, okay, what level of respect do we have for each other? Uh, What level of communication and what channels do we have for each other? So we started having a conversation like, hey, something's changed. Like the last six months feel different. What's going on? How do we feel? Where are we headed? And we both came to the conclusion like, well, it's been great. And we've got this beautiful boy and we still have a love for each other, but, there's this sense of like, well, there's a deeper friendship than there is an in intimacy. So we can let this fester, or we can take some ownership of this and really think with Finn in mind. I had parents who've divorced and they still don't speak 25 years later. I'm never going to do that. And so there were some bumpy experiences, you know, a few bumps in the road in terms of like, how do we logistically do this? And what does it look like? Naturally, it was challenging But at no point did we lose respect for each other. At no point was there yelling or screaming. You know, we've not had to engage lawyers and talk about this and that. And it's just been all through respect. And we have this philosophy that we started talking about in the early days of happily even after. And Disney would say happily ever after, right? Um, But we're like, hey, we can be happy even after the marriage the relationship transforms. So we look at it as a relationship transformation. We're now on a different level of our relationship and we just happen to not be in the same house and there's no intimacy, but we're great mates. So that's been a a process. So for example, Caroline, my partner and I, we traveled for a week and a half and Lisa came to the house here uh, in the Bay and she house sat for us. Uh, We have midwinter Christmas where Lisa brings her friends and we have our friends. And it's truly wonderful. It takes work, but I know that it's better for Finn it's better for Lisa, better for me, it's better for everyone around. So we decided to consciously uncouple. We don't really talk about divorce. We don't talk about Mm. X. I always call her Lisa, my former wife, or Lisa Finn's mom, out of respect for the great human that she is. And I don't think X does that justice. And so we think about the words that we use and how we talk to each other and about each other, and particularly around Finn, You know how I talk about his mom when she's not there. I know that has such an impact on his psychology about who he is. And uh, that takes work. And of course, there's challenges. Of course, it's difficult. Of course, there's things we've got to work through and make sure we're on the same page. But thats I think it's a conversation worth having. And it's, it's a challenge worth fighting.
1: Now, congratulations. I think your process relative to most other people sounds very, very healthy, mature, and like you say, respectful. And it seems like in a roundabout way, out of a difficult situation, everyone won. You've won, Finn's won, Lisa's won, you know what I mean? There's, there's smiles in everyone's faces and I don't doubt there wasn't a couple sort of challenges and, and moments in amongst it all, but um, it takes a lot of maturity to sort of do that. and stark contrast, dare I say, to your folks, unfortunately, I just think, yeah, to have that level of unpleasantness continue for all those years and the impact that that has to everyone, so I think, you know, I'm really glad I asked that question. You know, I guess that could go to any relationship, right? Sometimes relationships, you know, whether they're mates or, or others or professional relations, sometimes you just grow apart, don't you? It just sort of changes. So sort of tackling that in a proactive manner and sort of doing that through a lens of respect, I think it's really, really healthy and, and fantastic. So well done there, mate. You've done a good oh, job. Thanks, man.
0: Cheers, mate.
1: You've interviewed and come across some really impressive people and I've read Sir John Key's book and enjoyed that book. I thought amazing story from someone coming from pretty humble beginnings in state housing. In Christchurch, there to amazing career in investment banking, and then obviously coming the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I, I think he did a fantastic job. You got the opportunity to have a bit of a chat with uh, Sir John. I'd be keen to understand your take on why you think he's such a great leader, and what's his superpower as that person. I think individuals have certain things that they can really hang their head on. What sort of really comes to top of mind when you're about Sir John Key? Mm, he's a
0: really special human, actually. So had the chance to connect with him like this. And then we started to develop a bit more of a personal relationship. So he came down and I ran an intimate leadership event in Queenstown for about 10 of my leadership clients. And we spent the the weekend with him. And in fact, in October this year, in Christchurch, I'm running high performance leadership. It's a two and a half day event. He's coming down for that. The more I get to know him, the more I like that the respect just deepens. So probably there's a couple of things that are remarkable about John is that it came from a family, the single mother growing up in you know state housing in Christchurch, very young at the age of seven, said I'm going to make a million dollars and I'm going to be prime minister, and he was very <laughs> clear on that vision. Like and it was like his mom said, "Cool, go for it. Like that's awesome." Yeah, yeah. And obviously, he followed through on those promises. There's two things about him. I think he's actually got two superpowers, and they're both different. So one is a cognitive superpower. He is incredibly sharp. He sees things. He understands processes, systems, economies. He's so intellectually sharp His acuity is through the roof. Probably only one other leader I've interviewed who I would say would be close to that acuity level. He's He's just an incredible leader. The other thing, and I think this is a deeper superpower. So everyone communicates. We all talk at each other. John has the capability to connect. He knows how to deeply connect with humans, whether that's through the lens of a camera, whether that's on a stage, or whether that's sitting in the car when I'm driving him back to the airport. He has a way to connect and make you feel like you're valued, that you belong, that he cares for you. And it's genuine. You can see this is not something he's just trained to do. He genuinely cares about people and wants to connect with them. So I think he's a very special leader, someone I really respect. And obviously being in politics, there's going to be people who love him and people who don't. Uh, but put the politics aside, he's just an incredible leader that wants to do well for other people.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It just sort of shows the power of vision and goals, doesn't it? Even at seven years of age, having that desire to, A, make a million dollars and, B, be a prime minister, but also, obviously, the discipline to go after those things. is quite remarkable, isn't it? But he also seems to have a deep patriotic desire, and no doubt still now, but particularly when he's prime minister, to make New Zealand better and be improved and for everyone to have a better place to live. So I thought he was a fantastic definition of, of what a Prime Minister should be. And like you say, everyone's got a different opinion on these things, but sounds like a remarkable individual that you've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with. So um, that's really good. It's evident to me that right from the ripe old age of 12, when you went down to the library to start your research project on improving yourself, you've invested a lot in yourself. Can you sort of share a little bit around maybe some of the rituals or things or habits that you've got in place to live your best life and where you show up each day as your best self? Mm. And I guess just on the back of that, the one thing that you actually reminded me of, and I've done NLP courses and I've been to Tony Robbins, but the one thing that amongst other things that sort of shone through to me in our conversation the other day was limiting beliefs. And sometimes even that limiting beliefs can resurface and just put a ceiling on where you get to in life. And it occurred to me, maybe some of those sort of limiting beliefs that crept back into my life. So sorry to ask a long-winded question, but you know, I'd be keen to understand what habits and rituals you've got. And then I'd love for the listeners just to understand that concept of limiting beliefs.
0: So we are a product of our habits, and we've all got habits, whether they're good or bad, whether they're empowering or not. So to me, in terms of limiting beliefs and in terms of crafting a life of intention and something that we're proud of, not something that we can be proud of in the future, but something that we're proud of today, to me, that requires you to heighten your awareness. And people who are more self-aware, they tend to have more choices, and they, they make better choices. And in the end, they get better results. People who are very almost blindsided, they put the blinkers on, very narrow focus, often in terms of fulfillment, they miss out. They could be very successful in a field but miss out on the joy, the passion, the, all that good stuff. So heightening your awareness allows you to see things from a different perspective, allows you to grow quicker, and allows you to be more rounded, I think. So in terms of heightening your awareness, I think there's three key things that everyone should consider doing. And none of them can cost money. The third one can, depending on the level you want to go with it. But all of them you can do for free. Number one, mindfulness, meditation, whatever you want to call it, mental training taking time to slow down, taking time to go inwards, close your eyes, to focus on something really central, whether it's your breath, whether it's a guided meditation where you're going through and and visualizing what they're asking you to visualize. But that allows you to slow your brain frequency. It allows you to then go, okay, let's open our creative thoughts. So we're going from the analytical mind, which is constantly analyzing and thinking. And then we go through into the subconscious mind. And the only way to do that Really successfully and at no cost, is to have a mindfulness practice. And it's called the practice because nobody is perfect at it. Practice doesn't make perfect. I was having a chat with Finn the other day, and he's like, Dad, practice makes perfect. I was like, Well, let's explore that. Do you think it does? And what do you think <laughs> perfect? And so we're having this conversation. I said, How about we consider practice makes permanent? And the more we practice, we develop some permanency. And he's like, Oh, okay, Dad, think about that. So I really feel like your practice of meditation is a daily commitment. Um, I do it twice a day. So I do when I get up, I read for a little bit just to kind of waken up. And then I meditate for 15 to 30 minutes. And then at night, it's the last thing I do. I actually fall asleep to a meditation. So that's number one. Number two, it's got it's sitting right here, my journal, right? I've got journals everywhere. And I do love digital technology. A lot of what I do is online. I've got a personal leadership planner that's on my iPad, but... The last thing I want to do in the morning and you know, before I go to bed at night, the last thing I want to do is look at a screen. So I've got an old school planner, a little journal, and in there, I journal what my challenges are, what my highlights have been, what my wins are, you know, what am I trying to achieve? Why am I trying to achieve it? What am I measuring right now? Because what I measure actually matters. So I've got five or six things that I measure every day and give myself an evaluation. I measure them in the morning and in the evening. So over 700 times a year, I'm spending three minutes, just little micro measurements to go, what can I do to show up for the person that needs me most today? And then at the end of the day, on a scale of one to 10, how did I show up for that person? And so it's just micro adjustments, but it's heightening my awareness that it's not all about me. And then the third thing people can do uh, to really develop the awareness is to have a coach or a mentor. As I say, it doesn't need to be paid. You could be listening to your favorite thought leader on their podcast or on YouTube. You could be downloading their audio program. You could be reading their book or you could actually have your own coach or you could have a mentor that you meet with once a month. But that allows you to figure out what your blind spots are because your blind spots are your blind spots, right? So that mentor is like, hey, I've already done what you're trying to do and I'm 30 years ahead of you and I'm here for your best interests. And I know you can't really see what you're doing there, but you're going down that path and if you were to make this little adjustment in what you're doing and maybe reach out in that direction, I think you might be a little more successful. So those three things I firmly believe are habits and rituals that anyone can do at any level and see a massive difference in their quality of life. Uh, very, very simple.
1: I agree. And yeah, I, I do all of them and can't imagine life not doing them. But a little, little difficult to get into, particularly meditation. I felt a little, for a guy that's always busy and active, It was hard to begin with, but now it's a bit like brushing my teeth. I couldn't imagine a day to go by without doing that. So I I agree, some fantastic, simple things, and like I say, essentially free, which which is awesome. What about limiting belief? How would you define a limiting belief, and how does it sort of show up to sabotage what could be?
0: It's really interesting, a really great question. So in terms of a limiting belief, the thing about it is that it's subconscious. Often our limiting beliefs are not things that are like very obvious, and they sit beneath the surface. They can come to the surface when we're triggered, and we can be triggered by people saying, you're not good enough. You don't got this. Like This is not your gig. Or, you know what? I don't think you're cut out for this. That can really trigger a limiting belief of, am I enough? Do I have the potential? So I guess the way a limiting belief shows up is when you are sabotaging yourself, you're stopping yourself, you're procrastinating. So we all have procrastination in areas of our life. Procrastination is a great indicator that there's some kind of a limiting belief sitting underneath your subconscious. Now, a great way to do that is to release emotions and release beliefs. And, you know, I've got a coach who I work with, and she releases hurt, fear, scarcity. And those things crop up from time to time. You know, as I said, I grew up and we had enough money, but we were not wealthy. And so I grew up thinking of mega wealth You know, my narrative was, you know, the people that have lots of money, they've probably had to do something untoward to get that. Somebody had to suffer for them to be wealthy. And that was like a narrative that was kind of bred into me. And it was a belief that I developed. And that really actually limited me for about 10 years, maybe longer, in terms of what I thought was my worth, what I could financially dream of and work towards. It even limited me in terms of what cars I bought. I was like, oh, better not buy that because... Someone in the family might think I'm a bit of a show-off or a Muppet. and There was these little limiting beliefs. I was like, wow, but I like that car. That looks fun. I want to drive that. So Mm -hmm. I could only shift those when I became aware of them. And the only way I become aware of them is by dissociating, like removing myself from my own chaotic, crazy little mind and getting out there and going, okay, what truly matters? What do you really want? Okay, and why are you not getting it? And then in that gap of what I really want, And I'm not getting it, I play in the gap. And in that gap is where the limiting beliefs live. I feel you need others to help you shift them. And then through journaling, you can maintain that and continue to journal about what you're thinking and where it's holding you back. And yeah, but procrastination is one of the greatest signs of a limiting belief sitting beneath the surface.
1: Uh, fantastic explanation and I think uh, those limiting beliefs cost us a lot, right? You know, they get in the road of everything we think we could have, but then all of a sudden, bang, these limiting beliefs come in and sort of just cut us off at our knees. And and I think, uh, again, back to the sort of context of teaching young Finn or my young children, that notion of I mean, limiting beliefs when I was Finn's age. You know, it was just inconceivable to think that you might have a conversation to define what that might be, let alone like you're doing with Finn at the moment to label emotions and all that sort of stuff as well. So, no, I think uh, it just shows the power of a coach as well to take you on that journey just to sort of hold a bit of a mirror to some of that stuff that's going on. But there's no doubt in my mind you're you're having a, a huge life of impact, James, through the work that you're doing, hugely purposeful. And I can't imagine, and I'm sure you're the same, doing anything else in terms of what you do on a daily basis hardly seems like work it must be tremendously fulfilling so for some of the people that haven't stumbled across your great work so far how do people find out more about the awesome work you're doing well
0: look thank you for that sean i really appreciate it and i
1: truly do feel blessed and grateful
0: that i get to do what i do each day and it, it does not feel like work monday mornings feel like friday afternoons used to feel it's great to step into yeah. <laughs> Now what I'd love to do for anybody that's listening, I put together a personal leadership planner and it's designed to work on your mobile device like an iPad. It's incredibly in depth. It's got everything you need to set up your next five years, 12 month game plan, your daily planning, your monthly reflections, everything's in there. I wanna give that to any listeners for free, no, no cost. And so if they wanna get a copy of that, either go over to LinkedIn and, uh, and follow me there on, on LinkedIn and just drop me a message. Or if Instagram's their preferred channel, I'm James Lachlan Official on Instagram and just say, hey, I was listening to Sean's podcast and I'd really love a a free copy of the Personal Leadership Planner. I'd love to send that to them. And if they want to connect in a a way they don't want the planner, they can check out the podcast Lead on Purpose or they can go to the website JJLachlan.com.
1: Now, nah, awesome. Well, you're very kind to give that up for free. We'll certainly put that in the show notes as well, James. Mate, really enjoyed the time we spent together in Christchurch. I've got a funny feeling this won't be the last time we catch up. Really grateful that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to share some of this great stuff. If I'm honest, mate, I could bail you up all day and talk about some of the stuff. I've got a funny feeling this conversation we will pick up at another time, but yeah, really grateful for the work you're doing. All the best for what's in front of you and young Finn. Look forward to connecting sometime soon. Oh, thanks a million, Sean. All the very best. Look forward to seeing you soon.